Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Head over to the podcast page on our website and submit a question at www.bblsa.com podcast. Your question may be the topic of an upcoming podcast. And today I'm joined by my colleague, an engagement manager here at Back Bay, Christian Thino. Christian, welcome. Thanks, Pete. It is a pleasure, as always, to be back on the podcast. So we're trying to do a, a monthly update about topics and whatever strikes our fancy from news we're seeing in the industry. So to remind folks that did tune in, so to speak, last month, we discussed some of the innovations going on in the cardiovascular space and gene editing uh, specifically. And we're actually recording this on Halloween. And I'll anecdotally note, Lily announced another deal with Beam and Verve today. So it's interesting to see that continuing. But today I thought we'd review some of the happenings in, in what some would consider an adjacent space, and that's, that's the kidney. So we've touched to a greater or lesser degree on uh, transplantation in previous podcasts, but today I thought we could focus more on the, the chronic and rare disease angle of kidney disease, as there has been some changes in treatment, some recent commercial launches, and this perhaps has sparked some of the interest we're seeing from pharma consolidators, where there's been some recent M&A activities in the space. So, so Christian, maybe just by way of, of getting us warmed up here, you know, using our la last discussion about the cardio space and metabolic diseases, maybe you could tell us how these two areas have, have maybe become linked with some of the therapeutic approaches and label expansions we've been, we've been seeing in the renal disease space. Sure. Uh, that, that sounds good, Pete. And I think like, uh, like any discussion about the pharmaceutical space in 2023, all roads lead back and start at the type 2 diabetes and metabolic <laughs> uh, space, just kind of given where, where things are. Um, but yeah, I think that the, one of the key, you know, pieces of, of data that's emerged over the last, you know, five or six years or so has been the impact of SGLT2s in, in kidney disease. You know, that's a longstanding mechanism in type 2 diabetes. Basically, you know, sodium glucose co-transporter 2 basically, you know, in, increases the amount of glucose in urine and thereby kind of lowering overall blood sugar. They've been very effective in sort of, you know, glycemic control. Um, for for many years, but I, and then some data started coming out in these larger outcome studies, looking at things like you know cardiovascular events, impact on chronic kidney disease, and there was you know quite a bit of of evidence that emerged around the impact of these therapies, not only on on glycemic control, but also on some of these other you know large drivers of mortality in the type two diabetes population. Mm -hmm. um, and you know when added to standard of care, they've shown a reduction in you know major cardiac events, uh, you know myocardial infarction, stroke, things like that, hospitalization, as well as end-stage renal disease. So I think that that's, you know, spurred a lot of interest uh, of looking at SGLT2s in the kidney disease space, and I think also has precipitated, as we'll kind of get to, a lot of the activity that we're seeing um, in the renal space more, more broadly, and as that's becoming, again, kind of an extension from the metabolic and cardio sort of presence that a lot of these, you know, larger players had. And there were really two big studies, I think, that, that showed that. First being AstraZeneca's, you know, DAPA CKD mm -hmm. uh, trial. I'm looking at Dapagliflozin, which is Parxija is the brand name, which looked at, you know, over 4,000 patients across, you know, both type 2 diabetic and uh, non-diabetic patients. Yeah. Um, looking at, you know, basically impact on end-stage renal disease. 
and showed a, a pretty big reduction uh, in in the type two diabetic population. There was about you know I think it was thirty six percent reduction uh, in in overall kind of renal fun- or worsening of renal function and risk of death, yeah. and then fifty percent in the non diabetic population. Um, and there was also a large cohort of that study was um, in IgA nephropathy specifically, which I think we'll we'll get to some of that. And that's when one of the key indications of interest I think that's emerged over the past several years here, where you're seeing a lot of renewed interest in kind of novel mechanisms of action, largely centered around this SGLT2 story, but also other types of of, of mechanisms as well. Um, and then there was another you know study of empagliflozin, um, which is Beringer Engelheim's Lily's uh, product. Jardians mm-hmm. um, that again showed really compelling data in in CKD um, in sort of all cause hospitalizations and such. Okay, you mentioned along the way there's some data in certain subgroups, specifically you know the some of the data from the DAPAGIT DKD trial in IgA nephropathy, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that going forward. But but maybe just talk a little bit about you know, where we've seen the historic evolution of the space beyond CKD. So that's a very sort of, you know, larger diffuse market, certainly as it, it touches on E2D, but maybe some of the, the interest in, in more niche populations where CKD may be a manifestation of a, of a rare disease. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's been been a lot of those. I think you have a lot of different kind of types of indications there in terms of more kind of immune mediated diseases, some more kind of fibrotic uh, type diseases as well, which I think all, you know, have come under the, you know, focus of a lot of large pharma and consolidators in terms of, of areas where they're they're interested in. Um, so, you know, we've covered IgA nephropathy being one of the more kind of immune mediated diseases, and that's kind of more on the, yeah, that sort of immunology side of things. Focal segmental glomel glomerulosclerosis rolls off the tongue uh, it sure does i'll have to say that 10 times fast that's another one that has been I, I think a lot of companies have been taking quite a look at especially as i think that also has kind of coincided with some of the focus on you know nash and fibrosis and particularly in the, in the liver um i think that that's been one of the indications that that has also you know come under a lot of focus just in it is a slightly different angle in terms of the underlying pathology there and then you have things like, you know, Alport, more on the kind of genetic disease side, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease uh, is another one that is in the sort of genetic bucket. And then you have kind of complement mediated diseases in here like C3G or complement glomerulopathy. So and I think a lot of different, you know, different types of indications that people are looking at. And again, as you said, not only on the on the sort of large indication side, but also there's there's rare opportunities as well that, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of companies try to position those as potentially kind of an initial pathfinder or proof of concept for novel therapies or more kind of targeted mechanisms looking at a sort of specific type of pathology of, of kidney disease and maybe trying to expand that out to, to larger indications as well as part of a part of a growth strategy. Yeah. And I think, I think what's interesting just from our experience of advising companies in the field is sort of the, the concept of a, of a rare renal franchise is something that you know people have been kicking about since I've been at Back Bay, which is over over a decade at, at, at this point. And I think a couple of, of sort of key precipitating factors, I think, have, have sort of accelerated that. First of all, I think well-validated uh, drugs targeting, targeting known mechanisms that are at play in the kidneys. So I think a lot of the interest in the complement space 
and you know the 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 commercial success of Solaris and people trying to find next gen Soleruses or lifecycle right. management approaches for Solaris, where you, you sort of have a known complement pathology for a number of of kidney diseases, as you've mentioned, as well as I think evolving FDA guidance. So again, the willingness of the FDA to support surrogate markers for the basis of approval, and we'll talk about a bit of that as it impacts uh, approvals in the IGAN space, but surrogate markers uh, such as EGFR, the estimated glomerular filtration rate, or you know levels of, of proteinuria as, as approvable endpoints. And I think a lot of that uh, has renewed the, a flurry of interest in a lot of these rare diseases where, you know, if you have a mechanism that you think you can work either along the, the fibrotic pathway or inflammatory cascade, it's an area where maybe you could, you know, pick off a quick win, so to speak. And I think, again, a lot of that has left certain types of companies, you know, going public in the last few years. So you've seen companies like uh, Chinook, which certainly we'll, we'll talk about, uh, Trevere, Riata, and others going, going public largely, or, or in the case of Chinook reverse merging, largely on the basis of, of this type of story. And I think that's leaving, leaving aside, you know, all these other sorts of diseases that may be multi-organ that touches the kidney, like, you know, as you said, like, like lupus or Fabre or Anca vasculitis, where it's, you know, an inflammatory disease of, of the vasculature, wherein the, the, the kidney pathology is, is a large component. So, so I, and I think maybe transitioning to digging in a, a little bit here, I, I think the, the example of, of IGAN or IGN nephropathy is sort of an, an interesting space and in, in how it's evolving. You know, when we're counseling people and, and doing our analysis, we always sort of like to look to uh, analogous markets. And it's always sort of interesting to see one evolving, I guess, in, in real time here. And IGAN, I think, is a great example in this space where, you know, historically, you've had sort of the, the first generation approaches being used in this space, right? Your angiotensin converting enzymes, your ACEs, your angiotensin receptor blockers, your ARBs, which, you know, collectively are sort of known as, as RASI uh, therapy being used. Uh, you know, certainly, Christian, you spoke to the evolving use of, of SGLT2 inhibitors, where and in the last few years, those have been starting to be used in, in IGAN to a greater or lesser degree. And then, you know, given the fact that it is a inflammatory diseases, a lot of use based on physician preference of anti-inflammatories, some, you know, pretty powerful steroids or targeted agents like MMF or cyclophosphamide, you know, all of which have, have a lot of side effects. And I think, you know, historically looking at the IGAN field, when we were sort of counseling companies, it was just such a very slow-moving disease, relatively speaking. And, right. and again, I think the, the regulatory guidance really spurred a renewed interest here. And, and you've seen two recent approvals in the space. So one is Kalitatas, uh, which is a Swedish company 
and the approval of Tarpeo. And this is, is a reformulated sort of targeted release glucocorticoid, so steroid. It's a reformulation of budesonide, which is used in, in a variety of different clinical situations. But this is, is sort of a, a, a systemic treatment where the, it localizes the bioavailability uh, to suppress the B cells, mainly in the, in the gut mucosa to, to increase the, the tolerability. The other asset that, that more recently had a approval is Trevier's Philspari or Sparsenthin. Uh, you are much better at brand names and, and generic names, Christian. They get harder but, uh, and harder every year. So I know, but so I can say glomerular though. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've got you yeah, there. That's true. Um, we, we should have switched up if we're uh, keeping score. Uh, what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Nevertheless. Uh, so this is a combo of an angiotensin blocker with uh, a novel me mechanism. So uh, again, something targeting the tissue within the, the kidney and endothelin receptor. And again, this was a, a, a product that was approved based on its ability to, to affect, again, those, those surrogate endpoints in EGFR. Um, and, and so now you have sort of the, the first generation or, or generic, let's call it, approaches to branded agents, one sort of a, a combination inhibitor approach, one sort of a, 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 a tried and true uh, inflammatory agent, but again, with a novel, uh, formulation to sort of, you know, overcome some of the, you know, quite serious side effects to be sure that, that budesonide has. So, you know, this is a, a relatively rarer, uh, indication than broader CKD. It's one of the most common sort of known subtypes of CKD, but you know, these are still commanding fairly high uh, prices. So, sure. Philspari has launched with, you know, a, a cost in the range of $120,000 per year, not accounting for discounting uh, back to Trevere. Tarpeo's price is, is, you know, on par with that, maybe a little bit higher from the data we're seeing. Um, you know, and if you're reading the, the equity analyst and research that's coming out in this space, it, you're starting to see, you know, some of the shaking out as far as how these assets are being managed with respect to availability of generics, to higher priced therapies um, available, and sort of how payers are beginning to manage this. And, and what mm -hmm. you're hearing from some of the KOL checks that uh, the equity analysts are reporting is, you know, payers seem to be putting up maybe some, you know, barriers that are, you know, just sort of a, a check the box approach, sort of reading between the lines from what they're saying, you know, prior authorization, a trial of maybe one of these generic agents. But you hear the KOL saying, you know, really, if, if we do want this, we're going to be able to get it. It just may be a little bit more difficult and we may have to run a, 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 a trial of another agent. You know, and as you well know, that's something that we see a lot in the rare diseases where. Right. No, I was, I was going to, I think another interesting piece is, is, you know, it's, I think less so on the IG nephropathy side is that's a little bit more, you know, well-defined, but I think if you look at some of the other, you know, like diabetic kidney disease or other sort of CKD subtypes where there's a lot of overlap, 
with you know diabetes and other indications there comes a bit of a question of like who's really the d- treatment decision maker from a physician point of view of I think to your point on the kind of complexities of management not only on the payer side i think that there's also you know if you think about a diabetic kidney disease patient there's some extent of the, having to coordinate care between you know endocrinologist diabetologist versus a nephrologist maybe the pcps involved as well it's kind of a I think a bit of a, a challenging situation for some patients in terms of what's really the, the treatment priority. And I think, you know, certainly as you have some of these therapies that have benefit in kind of multiple indications, I think obviously that, that makes a good case for the SGLT2 inhibitors, not to, uh, not that I have a, a horse in the race in, in this, uh, so to speak, for, for those I know that I keep bringing them up. But I think it's an interesting case where, you know, you do have a kind of more complex care team than yeah. you might have in other indications that are a bit more you know, straightforward in terms of, you know, it's a single specialty and very straightforward treatment paradigm where there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts in these indications, but obviously a lot of opportunity as well. I think given, you know, uh, all of the activity that we've seen. Yeah. And what's interesting is I, I, I think from the label, label expansion standpoint of some of the, you know, the less targeted agents or let's call it, you know, broader mechanisms of action, reading, reading again, the equity research here, given, you know, that these are huge companies that are very well covered and, and large brands. It was interesting to read from some of the uh, KOL checks on the uh, impact of the non-diabetic CKD label that the SGLT2s got. Some KOLs were like, it'll make our life a little easier from a paperwork standpoint, but I don't know if this is going to lead to a huge uptick in utilization, because at the end of the day, the SGLT2s have so many nuances as far as labeling right. with cardiac involvement, proteinuria, some of them, as well as the underlying diabetic. And if you just think about the Venn diagram of all those comorbidities, you know, how many patients are left outside that potential labeling, you know, such that we've seen that, you know, it, it's becoming, you know, even more standard of care, even in, in IGAN, where I, I don't, you know, there's some data, but I don't know if there's a formal label for any of these. And so, if you sort of look at that evolution of the field, just to sort of close the the loop, so to speak, that's a very uh, esoteric pun because there's structures in the kidney called loops. Uh, but you, you, you've got now a very increasingly competitive pipeline in IGAN. So, you've got another endothelin inhibitor, so Chinook's atrocentin. Now, Novartis is uh, that, again, as of this recording, just posted some positive uh, data uh, yesterday. So, very promising. And then you've got, you know, coming behind those very sort of targeted, you could even call it more traditional immunology type mechanisms and modalities where you have people going after you know, B cells, ultimately, you know, B cells produce the immunoglobulins of which IGAN is one type. And so you have people using monoclonal antibodies to target uh, specific receptors or pathways that affect B cells, such as uh, the ones targeting April. You also have, again, we alluded to it earlier, people trying to affect the complement cascade. Again, you have sort of these immunoglobulins that get deposited in the kidney tissue and then sort of complement uh, begins to get deposited on those immunoglobulins sort of starting the cascade of tissue damage. So people trying to target the complement piece of it 
And again, you have folks like Ionis and Alnylum uh, with ASOs trying to target various mediators within the complement cascade. So it's sort of right. a, a very interesting market that, you know, five years ago, there was really nothing there. And now it's, you know, rapidly evolving into a market that seems not too dissimilar as some of the many other autoimmune markets in the rheumatology or dermatology space where you have, you know, first line generics, you've got branded reformulations, you've got small molecules, and now, you know, you're, you're more, you know, traditional biotech uh, playbook of, of, you know, uh, MABs and other targeted therapies. So... And so, and so that that's you know some examples of a success story in this field and how yep. sort of the the updated uh, regulatory guidance and pharma investment has led to some real you know meaningful changes for patients. But you know it all hasn't been rainbows and, and puppy dogs in the space as it sure. as it never is in pharma development. So so maybe on the on the other side of the coin, Christian, you know s- some of the stumbles or or other troubles folks have had along the way. And if there's any sort of insights, uh, we can glean there. Sure. A couple of the notable ones recently have been, you know, you saw the sort of Riata's uh, failure and CKD associated with Alport. Um, they had a CRL last year, and I think you know, there's not been any any progress on that that, that we've seen. And then you had Omeros that was an IgA nephropathy, which basically they terminated their phase three early because they were, you know, there was no no path to seeing a result there. Which I think uh, the couple of interesting things from that, I think with the with the Omeros situation, you know, they had really interesting phase two data in like a single arm study, and you know, that was sort of better than other products had performed in single arm, you know, or those types of studies in the past. And then sort of once they went into a placebo controlled study, there was really no no effect basically or no, mm-hmm. no real difference. So I think from the from the FDA point of view or the kind of regu- looking at the kind of regulatory side of things, I think might be an obvious point, but having kind of non-controlled data is really not supportive of any of the story here. And I think you you see that, you know, I think you alluded to it a bit earlier that there's been some advances and kind of guidance from the FDA on how to sort of go about things here. There's there's also been a lot of uh, back and forth with Ardelix was in one, one mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago had their, you know, tenapinor they were looking at in a CKD indication, were following an accelerated approval pathway, they had a result on serum phosphate, and the FDA basically said, we do not, we're not really convinced that there's going to be a clinical benefit with this. Yeah. And with, there was, you know, I think a lot of the debate about the accelerated approval pathway aside and how that is supposed to function, um, you know, that was one where, you know, they sort of went back and forth with the FDA, filed a formal appeal, the appeal was rejected. It yeah. was ba- basically <laughs> like, you know, it, it seemingly... Uh, a pretty dire situation for Ardelix. Oh. They had about, I think, over 60% of the company was, was you know, laid off or let go once that kind of initial data came. And then they actually were approved a couple of weeks ago. Um, they mm-hmm. finally got this through from the FDA and had a, a, a positive kind of panel opinion and, and moved that forward. So I think, you know, the, the, I think reading between the lines of all this, you know, the, maybe there is a bit more receptivity from FDA now. I think we've seen in other mm-hmm. spaces as well. You think about the kind of Alzheimer's case with that situation and sort of some of the other, other therapies in the neurospace. I hadn't heard anything about it. Oh, yeah. Th- there was something happening with Alzheimer's? Yeah, this product called Aduhelm. I'm not sure <laughs> okay. if you've heard of all that right. one. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I think uh, you know, I think we've seen a bit more flexibility on obviously the kind of the, the accelerated approval uh, yeah. Sort yeah. Of path. But I, I, you know, I think another interesting thing here too is, and we can talk about some of the the deals that have that have taken place. I think you know there's definitely a lot of emphasis on having that kind of clinical benefit and endpoint. And I think you know you, you definitely notice that a lot of the deals that are done tend to be for either very early stage kind of discovery type assets where there's a lot of ability to kind of you know generate new pipeline assets and kind of direct clinical development or things that are much more on the later end that are you know post proof of concept or even in phase three already where it's really kind yeah. of a bet on you know pretty late stage data and not yeah. so much kind of in between um, which i think you know is 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 pretty similar to what we've seen historically in some other spaces where you're talking about generally large outcomes based trials that you have to do um, for approval where there's a lot of, you know, a tremendous amount of clinical risk kind of in between. I think if you're willing yeah. to, you know, look at sort of have an early stage pipeline and, and, you know, see what you have from novel science, that's one thing. But if you're talking about, you know, early phase one, phase two A type assets, I think it can be a really difficult, difficult well, case, especially given the yeah. capital you need to run these, these studies too. Sure. Well, let's talk about that a bit because I think, you know, some of the news flow that, that we've been seeing even before, you know, the, the, the news from Novartis this week sort of precipitated our, our thinking about this as a, as a topic. And in the last four months, there's been a couple big deals. So maybe talk a little bit about what we've seen there. Sure. So obviously, and we've, we've talked about the kind of Novartis Chinook deal a couple of times, which is, you know, it was one of the larger ones in, in the space here. Uh, you know, another one was, you know, Nova Nordisk recently uh, doing a deal with KBP Biosciences, which was a $1.3 billion transaction which was, you know, focused on CKD. I think a lot of that influenced by Bayer's, you know, Carindia approved in 2021. Um, and I think you see, you know, a, kind of a lot of continued interest there. Uh, and, you know, I think overall what we had sort of, I think, again, what kind of spurred the interest in this discussion was really around a lot of these are, you know, particularly the Novo Nordisk one really being the very, I think, clearest demonstration of that kind of link between metabolic disease, yeah. you know, looking into the renal space as a kind of a logical extension from that, where, you know, obviously, you know, Nova Nordisk has been a mainstay of type 2 diabetes and now obesity and things for, you know, years and years and years. And I think you see them now making pretty meaningful, you know, meaningful bets in, in this space. And they've also done a couple of earlier stage deals in the past few years as well. They had one with Evotech uh, a few years ago for kind of a discovery stage asset. Um, or discovery collaboration, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of interest from the large pharma kind of metabolic focus side of things. And again, both on the early stage and these really, you know, later stage, large, you know, large deals. Yeah. And I think it's interesting your, your note about Novo Nordisk and, you know, the interest in cardio, metabolic, cardio, renal disease. They've also started looking at semaglutide in CKD and they released- What can't it do? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, topic for another day. Yeah. Uh, but again, they released some, some data in CKD for semaglutide. They've, I think, been interested in this space for a while from the outside looking in. They did a deal a number of years ago for uh, a US-based company called Corvidia, which had an anti-IL-6 that right. was sort of in and around end-stage renal disease, you know, and had some data about anemia associated with CKD, which is something that we didn't talk about today. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, now you've got, you know, two fairly big players starting to get into this field more and more with Novartis, 
then Novo Nordisk. You've had Sanofi with an interest in renal disease for a long time. And then you've right. got, you know, AZ and some of these other folks with the SGLT2s, Bayer and Lilly, and sort of how they think about moving around in this space from a mechanism and indication expansion. And just on the, maybe a topic for another day, the Chinook case study is pretty interesting because they are, I think, one of the, maybe not the few, but a poster child of a reverse merger done right. Right. Because they reverse merged into Aduro, which was an old immuno-oncology vaccine play that also had some preclinical assets sort of targeting immunologic mechanisms of which, you know, one of the earlier products in the uh, Chinook portfolio was. So again, the understanding of you can reverse merge into a company for the sake of the public listing in cash, but is there any other reason to believe that, that, that there's any fit from an, you know, asset or experience perspective, which is a topic for another day to maybe invite one of our colleagues to opine on. Yeah, it's an so. interesting point too, I think, given the current kind of environment around sort of new IPOs, but you have a lot of companies that continue to sort of hang out with, you know, public listings that have a lot of cash on the balance sheet in a lot of cases, but, you know, have there's been a lot of, a lot of turbulence yeah. in the space as well. So yeah. that could be a good one. Well, we've left two topics. We tease GLP-1s and uh, <laughs> uh, the public markets. So I, I, I think uh, given that, we better cut it off before we really go off the rails here. So uh, as always, thanks, Christian, for the time and, and insights here today. Of course. Thank you, Pete. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, particularly how this commercial ligand space uh, continues to shake out with now potentially... Uh, uh, another branded agent with an overlapping or similar mechanism is as an already uh, marketed drug out there. So, so thanks everyone for for joining us again for the Life Science Report brought to you by Back Bay Life Science Advisors. If you have a question about biopharma and med tech strategic development, partnering, licensing, or more, head over to the podcast page on our website and submit a question at www.bblsa.com/podcast. That's bblsa.com backslash podcast. Your question may be the topic of an upcoming podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.